Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we take a look back at Arizona's strictest and most controversial immigration law, SB 1070, which was signed into law 10 years ago. In 2010, the Arizona legislature passed a bill that gave local police the responsibility to check the immigration status of residents during routine stops. Known by its legislative ID, SB 1070, it quickly gained notoriety and widespread opposition from the Latino community and others around the country. I will now sign Senate Bill 1070. Governor Jan Brewer signed the measure into law in April 2010, saying it would make the state safer and promising it would not be used to racially profile people. We in Arizona have been more than patient waiting for Washington to act. But decades of federal inaction and misguided policy have created a dangerous and unacceptable situation. The measure soon gained the Show Me Your Papers nickname, and despite Brewer's assurances, Advocates warned it would inevitably lead to racial profiling. Luigi Del Puerto was a statehouse reporter at the time the bill was passed. Now he's editor and associate publisher of the Arizona Capital Times and the Yellow Sheet Report. He says the passage of SB 1070 was not a surprise. There were a couple things that uh, happened a couple years prior to 1070. Um, you know, the American economy had just crashed a few years before. Illegal immigration was the number one subject in Arizona. And of particular concern to policymakers was, uh, especially policymakers on the right, like Russell Pierce, was uh, drug smug smuggling on the border. To them, the issue was crystal clear. Uh, Arizona's borders are porous, and it's not just the economic migrants who are coming through. The drugs are coming through. And then, of course, um, Robert Krentz was murdered in his ranch in, oh, near Douglas. And that drove home the point that there is something amiss on the border, and specifically that it's a violent place. At that point, passage of uh, SB 1070 became certain. Had bills like this tried to come through before, and this was just, as you said, the right time for it with the economy and increase uh, of concerns over drug smuggling and then the murder of Rob Krentz? Yes. Yeah, so we've had we've seen uh, several bills, several uh, what uh, we typically would refer to in the media as enforcement type legislation. Right? So they take a hard stance on legislation. They wanted a state to do something about the problem. The rationale um, for those for these bills, for these proposals, was that the federal government really was not doing anything. When the bill finally got to Governor Jan Brewer, did she have any choice in this? Was or was this something she had to sign? We're looking at, at this in hindsight, right? That did she have a choice? I mean, everybody always had, always has a choice. I think politically it became very difficult for her to veto the bill or to let it pass without, you know, let it become law without her signing it, which is an option, of course. As a governor, you can just let a proposal on your desk go through without signing it. I do suspect that at some level she might have some reservations about the details of the bill, but I also suspect that she agreed with parts of it. Did she want it on her desk? Most likely not. 
it's interesting. That was a, a pretty big bill. Um, it had a lot in it. And most people don't realize that just looking at the Supreme Court opinion, parts of it were struck down and parts of it were left standing. Yes, there were a couple. It had several, you know, it had several provisions, right? So it made it a failure to comply with federal alien registration requirements and misdemeanor. It criminalized the act of working or seeking to to work by an undocumented immigrant. You know, it, it authorized the warrantless arrest of individuals if an officer has, you know, probable cause that individual has committed a public offense and makes that person removable removable from the United States. I think a lot of people kind of hone in on, uh, you know, the biggest component of this bill, which is that it required, you know, law enforcement officers to inquire about an individual's legal status during, you know, routine stops. And pretty much all of those provisions had been struck down by the court over the years, except the kind of the core of this proposal, which is it, it still allows the police officers to ask for your legal status during a routine stop if that officer has reasonable cause to believe that you may be here in the country illegally. When all the boycotts and protests came up around 1070, this was a, a tumultuous time after it passed, uh, and not just around the Capitol. We saw protests down here in Tucson. Uh, did you ever hear any lawmakers quietly in the corner of the floor or, or, or maybe back in the members' lounge or something say, we made a mistake, we shouldn't have passed this? That's a tough question because I, I could not, you know, at that time, people had to make a choice, right? They are, they're either for SB 1070 or they were against that 1070. There was really no middle ground. You couldn't really kind of hide in the corner and hope that, you know, nobody would ask you about it. Um, I mean, I know there were members of the Republican caucus who did not want 1070, but still voted for it. Um, and they had to take a stand. So using uh, our 2020 hindsight and looking at the legislature today, if SB 1070 showed up during this year's now past legislative session or showed up next year during the legislative session, would it pass? And would Governor Ducey sign it? The, the chances of it, you know, chances of a 1070 type of legislation at this time passing is practically nil. After 1070, we, the, the state encountered boycotts, of course. You know, we had other states, other cities um, effectively saying, we're not going to do business in, in Arizona. But I think the biggest thing that happened was it soured the relationship that we had with Mexico. Mexico is Arizona's biggest trading partner. And they're not going away. We're not going away either. We have to kind of find a way to coexist but more than just coexisting, you know, you had culturally, we're very close to Mexico, socially, very close to Mexico. Um, economically, we're very tight with, the, you know, with, 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 with Mexico. And um, that relationship, you know, went all right after 1070. And so Doug Ducey, I don't, you know, my, my reading was, he wasn't, necessarily personally vested in repairing the relationship when he was running for governor. But I think at the moment that he became governor, he saw the importance of repairing the relationship. And really kudos to the governor for working or hunkering down and working really hard to get the relationship repaired. And now a lot of people would agree that that relationship has been repaired. After 1070, it became almost impossible 
to get uh, an, a, an enforcement type of legislation on the immigration front succeed in the legislature. A lot of people have tried. You know, politically, it's a different legislature, but also the world really has changed. That was Luigi Del Puerto with the Arizona Capital Times and the Yellow Sheet Report. We reached out to several lawmakers who backed SB 1070 in the legislature, but none were willing to be interviewed. Russell Pierce, the bill's main architect and sponsor, was recalled from office in November 2011. Roberto Villasenor was Tucson's police chief when SB 1070 passed. The 35-year police veteran talked with us about what the bill meant to his force. With the benefit of hindsight, we asked him if he thinks the bill made Arizona safer. No, I really don't. It brought a topic that needed to be discussed to the forefront. I think its way of doing it and the intentions that it had were wrong. It put local police in, in a bad perspective, and I think it caused some division between communities and local police. Um, and I really didn't see that much of a benefit. I think some people will say, well, because of SB 1070, attrition caused a drop in the number of illegal immigrants. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I think there's a variety of issues that may have caused that. How do you think SB 1070 affected TPD's relationship with the community? Did people react differently to your officers? Well, some people did. I mean, I think what people have to take into consideration oftentimes is the very vocal people are not the majority of the people. I think the problem that came up, though, is that it did affect our relationship with the Hispanic community because of the vociferousness of the activists that were so much against it. And believe me, I was against it as well. But I think that because of the political desires of certain people, there were things being said that weren't always accurate, and there were accusations made against the police department that definitely were not accurate, and that hurt our relationship with the community. What were some of those accusations made against the department that were not accurate? Well, oftentimes they would accuse the department of going out there on raids with ICE or with Border Patrol, or that the department was actively trying to enforce SB 1070. And I can tell you, we absolutely did not do that. As the chief of the agency at that time, I was adamantly against SB 1070. However, once it went through the system and the Supreme Court said that a provision of it was not going to be imposed against and that we were to enforce that, then it was our obligation as law enforcement to enforce it. My role was to make sure we did it ethically and professionally. Did police officers have to spend more time on immigration-related issues as opposed to addressing the other things going on in the community? Absolutely not. In fact, we instituted policies to make sure that officers did not hold people in prolonged periods of time and that we were very, very clear saying you only detain people as long as necessary to do what you were supposed to do, stopping them for in the first place. Now, we did have a couple of occurrences. I'm not going to, you know, be ignorant about say where some officers would go beyond that and we dealt with those we went back to what we had always been doing if we came across people that we suspected being in the country illegally we contacted border patrol the difference being is that we were probably stricter in not holding them for border patrol than we would have been in the past so in that way in some ways sp 1070 benefited people who were here illegally because we let them go much quicker than we would have prior to SB 1070. 
because it was such a focal point for the community and for the nation, for that matter. Ten years on, do you think there's been a lasting impact of SB 1070 on the Tucson community and or within law enforcement? I think that it definitely had an impact nationally within law enforcement because it brought the topic to the forefront and it exposed an issue that is causing problems still today where local law enforcement often gets involved as, as I don't want to say chess pieces of pawns, but the reality is that the issues that local law enforcement deal with oftentimes are national and political issues. You know, we serve the whole community, and that's everyone that's here. That's our role, to provide for the safety of everyone that's here. And we're not supposed to deal with the issues of federal immigration, which are, for the most part, civil violations, not criminal violations. That was former Tucson Police Chief Roberto Villasenor. This week, we're taking a look back at SB 1070, 10 years after it was passed by the Arizona legislature. The law required state law enforcement to ask those deemed suspicious of being undocumented to present proof of legal immigration status during routine encounters, among other things. Arizona's Latino community, especially young people, responded to SB 1070 with protests and demonstrations, objecting to what they saw as racial profiling. We gathered the perspectives of several young Arizonans who were affected and motivated to activism by SB 1070. We've edited them together to get a picture of what things felt like 10 years ago. I was about 12 years old when SB 1070 became a law. I don't remember exactly where I was or what I was doing when this happened, but I do remember coming home from school every afternoon, sitting down at my kitchen table to start my homework, and then in the background, my mom would play the news where I would constantly see attorneys warning undocumented people, like my mother and sister, against the dangers of going outside under this law, against the dangers of doing something as simple as going to work or going to the grocery store or driving to drop off your kids off at school because it could result in being separated from them through deportation. And I remember just looking at my mother and sister anytime that they would walk out the door and feeling this sense of anxiety and a drop in my stomach and really wondering if that would be the last time that I would see them. When SB 1070 first passed, I was 12 years old, about to be 13. Technically young if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, but I think I had to grow up a lot faster than some of my peers in school. Just understanding a lot of the dynamics of being the daughter of two immigrants and what that meant. I was in college when SB 1070 passed and I knew that folks like my dad, for example, who, although was born in Mexico, had his citizenship, looked very like your typical Latino. And I knew that from then on, my dad and others alike would be discriminated by law enforcement and be pulled over um, just for the color of their skin or for their looks. I was uh, 21 years old uh, when SB 1070 passed. At that time, I was a junior in uh, college, studying mechanical engineering uh, at ASU. And uh, I have been involved in immigrant rights, mostly advocating for the DREAM Act and the right of undocumented youth as we went to the Capitol. So I remember being there. I remember when uh, officially it was signed and when the people found out. And I just remember people crying, um, uh, a lot of children crying, um, adults 
getting mad. Uh, and there was a lot of chaos and there was a lot of pain. We grew up with a lot of fear of the police. We were always taught, you know, keep your head down. Don't bring attention to yourself. Don't do anything bad that will catch their attention or make them have to come talk to you. So from this young age and as a result of this law, I was forced to come face to face with the very real threat of family separation. And it honestly became my biggest fear. And now I just remember having this conversation with my parents and my siblings. when they were thinking, hey, you know, we have to leave the state. This is going to be horrible. They're going to start pulling us over and tear the, tear the family apart. So I just remember having a lot of those conversations. I remember being told the quote-unquote plan, you know, like if one day mom didn't come home from work, I was to call this specific tia and we would be living with her from then on because mom would be back in Mexico and wouldn't be able to come back. Um, and just being ready to take on that responsibility so young is not something that any 12-year-old should be ready to do. And eventually there came a day where this fear came true where I came home from school and found out that my sister had been stopped by a police officer and that she was now going to be deported. I felt helpless. I was angry. I was disillusioned. I was constantly wondering why nobody was fighting back against this, why nobody was showing up for us. It was the show me your papers law. It was the racist law, the, the law that we had to be scared to drive around our own neighborhoods, our own communities. And I remember that really bothering me. I remember it really lit a fire inside me that made me want to do something about it. I decided to start giving my life to social change and uh, helping out in the community. And I was just hell-bent that we we're going to fight back. No, we have to go fight back. So I was the only one of my, my, my family who would just go to the protest, try to organize a school events. At the same time, I was advocating for the DREAM Act, so then I came out of the shadows. It was it was a scary time to come out of the shadows and say that you were undocumented. <laughs> we said we were undocumented and afraid, and I always laughed because I was super afraid. I remember convincing some of my older cousins to take me with them to the marchas downtown. Um, and just honestly being so in awe of everyone who was standing up in front of all the crowds and leading them and and just like the things that they were saying and I just felt so empowered like yes like we shouldn't be scared we shouldn't be put down and so this sense of disillusionment for me translated into a necessity to become engaged in my community at a later age and to become involved in activism community organizing and to drive change and to ensure that members of the undocumented community of the immigrant community here in Arizona and across the nation feel supported and that they have the resources to fight back against these types of laws. It pushed me to don't don't wait for change. Uh, they, if you want something, you have to go out there and fight it. Uh, and that this, this is to me what this incentive showed me is that if I want to live in Arizona that is more inclusive immigrants, that treats us with more respect. Uh, where we don't have to fear driving, uh, being pulled over, um, that we don't have to fear this individual. You just have to take it into your own hands. If anything, it made us resilient. It made us stronger. And just looking at now, 2020, Arizona State-led still tried to implement an even tougher SB 1070 law. But because our community has come together, because we have continued to educate ourselves and become strong, and resilient and unafraid, 
we were able to stop that law. In terms of looking back and what has changed in 10 years since then, I'm not too sure, honestly. I think under this administration, so many of the fears that were planted at that time are still so present. Uh, Every other week, it feels like there's like a change that affects our community. Our communities are still being super targeted, being treated as lesser than, being called names in the media. It's so disgusting. It's disheartening to say I don't know how much has actually changed. I think Evit and 70 has created a new generation of activists, uh, of organizers. We're trying to better the life. But I think it also has done a lot of damage, specifically psychologically, emotionally, mentally, uh, to a lot of folks. I think of pre uh in 70 is sort of like the loss of innocence uh in a sense <laughs> at least for me uh, i think in 2010 it was like I, before 2010 I, ha- I was more naive more hopeful uh sort of like believing in, in a lot of things could be different and good always triumphs because i always read comic books growing up and, and all these things and that's not the case um that's what i was thinking was broken now i am hopeful but i'm pragmatically hopeful those were the voices of jose patino Nathalie Guevara, Ana Karina Rodriguez, and Angelica Cesar, edited for Time and Clarity. Many of them are now organizers in Arizona's Latino community. SB 1070 was partially struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court two years after it was passed. But as we just heard, and as Elisa Resnick tells us, the bill forged a new generation of Latino activism in Arizona. Growing up undocumented in Tucson, Jaime Tadeo learned early on that certain everyday actions might end in trouble. I was told to not interact with police, to be careful, to not talk to strangers, to not talk to anyone about where I'm from, to try to speak English as much as I could. It wasn't unusual to see Border Patrol cars and checkpoints in town asking for immigration paperwork. Tadeo and his siblings knew which relative to call if something happened and what to say if they got pulled over. And when they weren't at work or school, the family stayed home. It was kind of sort of like a a pandemic itself. You know how we're currently just staying at home. But back then it was an epidemic of fear. That was before SB 1070 was passed in 2010. The bill gave police some of the same responsibilities of immigration officers. Tadeo was in high school at the time and remembers feeling like the family knew how to protect themselves. But that didn't prepare him for what came next. My dad got detained by Border Patrol. He was driving with my uncle. My uncle got pulled over by Highway Patrol. And that officer called migration on my dad because he did not have a driver's license, even though he was not driving. Tadeo's dad was taken to a detention center in Eloy. Tadeo says he still can't remember the month or even the time of year. He's blocked most of those details. What he does remember is looking for resources to help his dad and realizing there wasn't an obvious place to turn. No one's really prepared for that. You know, you have to look for resources on your own. But having to go through that, I did not want that to happen to anybody else. The family hired a lawyer, and after a month in detention, his father was allowed to come back home. Tadeo says the grueling experience is what shaped him as an organizer. 
Today, he works with the Latino community health organization Amistades and serves on the Tucson Police Department's Community Advisory Review Board. He received deportation protection in 2012 through the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. The status allowed him to get a work permit and a driver's license for the first time. But it doesn't mean he's forgotten why he became an advocate. Even if it was my worst enemy, I do not want their family or brother or sister to be taken away by immigration because it just kind of stops your whole life. And that's not something I would ever want to wish to anybody. Tadeo says the Latino community is still recovering from those experiences. When SB 1070 was enacted, Tucson Police Sergeant Jason Winsky was an officer working in the city's south side, the same area where Tadeo grew up. Some departments carried out their own immigration enforcements before SB 1070. But Winsky says that wasn't the case in Tucson. We had a lot of strong policies in place even at that time that talked about not detaining people for that reason. He says he never pulled anyone over under the law. But cities that failed to comply risked legal tangles with the state. Winsky says that meant police in Tucson walked a fine line. A lot of it was trying to educate our community and do outreach to the community that I worked in to let them know that really for us, nothing changed. Really kind of walking that tightrope. But for people like Reina Montoya, SB 1070 marked an important moment for immigration policy and a grassroots effort to challenge it. Montoya is a DACA recipient and the founder of an immigrant advocacy group in Mesa called Aliento. She grew up in the same legislative district where former Representative Russell Pierce first began pushing for SB 1070. And back then, she was an undocumented student at Arizona State University. Listening to professors dissect the law felt like hearing the cold mechanics of a measure that could profoundly change her own life. This is not a job for many of us. This is a way for us that we fundamentally want to change policies that have damaged our communities and our families. Just like Tadeo, Montoya's family has faced deportation threats. And she knows many other people who did, too. The fight was personal, and to Montoya, it needed to be addressed by those impacted the most. As other organizations focused on changing policy, in 2016, she created Aliento to address fear and trauma for mixed immigration status families. For me, you know, like I, I really saw that that SB 1070 in 2010 really served as a catalyst for so many people like me from impacted communities to regain regain our agency. Montoya says mixed immigration status families face their own challenges today in Arizona. SB 1070 was her catalyst. Now she says she hopes to help a new generation find theirs. For The Buzz, I'm Elisa Resnick. And that's The Buzz for this week. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.